0: Confirmation. Reflections on Flannery O'Connor's short stories, Parker's Back and the Artificial Nigger. Narrated by Gil Bailey and produced by the Cornerstone Forum. Part 2. Parker would be satisfied with each tattoo for about a month. Then something about it that had attracted him would wear off. Whenever a decent-sized mirror was available, he would stand in front of it and study his overall look. The effect was, you see, when he stands in front of the mirror to uh, admire his overall look, he doesn't have the advantage of being in, near the back of the tent, as he did when he first got onto this n- way of being. So he says, as he stood before the mirror, the effect was not of one intricate arabesque of color. Now, what he's what he's longing for is that intricate arabesque of color that he had seen, this mysterious figure. Now, if he'd, if he'd been closer to the mysterious figure, he would have recognized that it was not one intimate arabesque of color. But that doesn't matter. He was back there, and that's what he saw, because what's happening inside him is something that that is moving towards an intimate arabesque of color. But he stood before the mirror and he says notices that all of this all of this stuff on the surface of him is not that. The effect was not of one intricate arabesque of color, but of something haphazard and botched. A huge dissatisfaction would come over him, and he would go off and find another tattooist and have another space filled up. He felt a terrible dissatisfaction and he went out to get another space filled up. And there's another metaphor for the modern culture, which is that it's, it, 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 prov- it offers every opportunity for filling up spaces. Uh, space, Physical space, spiritual space, temporal space, uh, mental space, emotional space. Uh, we have a culture that has mastered the art of filling, filling up the spaces. So, and it's the spaces... Uh, where, wh- where one begins to, f- to feel a kind of haunting. It's in the spaces where one feels that somehow something's not, life is not really being lived to the full, see? And there's something other, there's a call there. You see, as Jasmine walks in the desert, she hears the soundtrack on that film, which was, I'm calling you. Uh, and it's in that space in between that we hear that. So we fill the spaces up. As the space in the front of him for tattoos decreased, his dissatisfaction grew and became general, which is to say that one half of him, the half he can see, is now filled with tattoos. And uh, that, really is, that, that really is the midpoint in life. That's the midlife point. Now, he's a young man. He's, a, he's only in his twenties. Carl Jung said midlife begins at 35, and uh, because we're, we stretch adolescence out so long for most uh, Americans, it begins a little later than uh, that. But really, symb- uh, symbolically, uh, it begins when you've got the whole front of you covered, and uh, uh, dissatisfaction sets in. He went AWOL from the Navy. Uh, his dissatisfaction from being chronic and latent had suddenly become acute and raged in him. It was as if the panther and the lion and the serpents and the eagles and the hawks had penetrated his skin and lived inside him in a raging warfare. So you pick up all that stuff month after month, season after season, fad after fad, rumor after rumor, you know, great truth after great truth, and pretty soon the the uh, haphazard and botched result of all that begins to seep into you. So back to Parker and his wife, or his wife-to-be, uh, she didn't care for tattoos. She said it was vanity, vanity of vanities. Uh, but he insisted, he said, well, which one do you like best? And she said, well, I, of all, I don't like any of them, but that, that chicken's not as bad as the rest of them. He said, what chicken? <laughs> and she pointed to the eagle. That's an eagle, Parker said. (laughs) What fool would waste their time having a chicken put on themselves? What fool would have any of it, the girl said and turned away. She went slowly back to the house and left him there to get going. Parker remained for almost five minutes looking agape at the dark door she had entered. (laughs) So a little revelation here, which is that what's that going to do for you? You see, so suddenly the initial... uh, occasion for his stirring to life is challenged there comes a moment when uh, the initial uh, stirring got him so far and then there comes a moment when that's not going to do see that's that, he has an experience which is it's not worth anything he keeps going back although he doesn't understand why and he brings apples He's, he sells apples to uh, sells fruit to make a living he brings fruit with him and she's poor and hungry and so she grabs an apple and starts to eat it uh, with relish and she's looking out over the porch. Uh, the view from the porch stretched off across a long incline studded with iron weed and across the highway to a vast vista of hills and one small mountain. Long view's depressed Parker. You look into space like that and you begin to feel as if someone were after you, you the Navy or the government or religion. But keep those three in mind, and we'll come back to them yet. Yeah. He asked if all the children in the yard were hers, and she said, no, she wasn't married yet, as, as though, Parker said, as though she's going to get married any old day. Who in God's name would marry her, Parker thought. He sat there looking at the view, thinking he might be coming down with something. And then he said, because he had nothing else to say, he said to her, I ain't got any tattoo on my back an acknowledgment, uh, I guess, that uh, there's still half of his life to be lived. Uh, today's the first day of the rest of your life or something like that. Anyway, the third day, the third time he came, she asked him his name, and he said, O.E. Parker. And uh, she said, what's O.E. stand for? And he said, never mind, what's yours? And she said, I'll tell you if you tell me, with just enough flirtatiousness in his voice to, uh, for it to go to his head. And... Uh, he had, and then the story says he had never revealed a name to any man or woman, only to the files of the Navy and the government, and it was on his baptismal record which he got at the age of one month, his mother was a Methodist. So that tells us a number of things. He felt if you looked into the long uh, you took the long view, you, you started feeling like somebody was after you. the Navy, the government or religion. Well, it just turns out. That it's the Navy, the government, and religion that know his name. So, what he's fleeing from is, this, is, is his name and the consequence or the, the, the significance of his name. And he has abbreviated it in order to avoid it. And the other thing it points out is, and again, this is Flannery O'Connor insinuating this very consciously his mother was a Methodist, he was baptized at one month, meaning that he is a character who needs the confirmation sacrament. Infant baptism is what uh, Lee made confirmation necessary. Um, when his name leaked uh, out of the Navy files, Parker, Parker narrowly missed killing the man who had used it. So he doesn't want anybody to know his name, uh, but she swears that she won't blab it to anybody. So the story says, Parker sat for a few minutes in silence. Then he reached for the girl's neck, drew her ear close to his mouth, and revealed the name in a low voice. Obadiah, she whispered. Her face slowly brightened as if the name came as a sign to her. Obadiah, she said. The name still stank in Parker's estimation. So he's got a middle name. We'll get to that in a minute. But his first name is Obadiah, and uh, it's part of what he's been fleeing from. Now, Obadiah is the... Is the briefest prophetic work in the in the uh, Old Testament, the setting for Obadiah is the long historical conflict between Israel and Edom. The story in Genesis of Jacob and Esau was a narrative version of the origins of the of the hostility be- between Israel and Edom. Uh, the Edomites descended from Esau who foolishly sold his birthright for a bowl of stew. Uh, but the edomites were a, a long time enemy of israel when the babylonians swept in and destroyed jerusalem and took uh, took people off to babylon the edomites were among the culture surrounding culture groups who who joined in the political cannibalism uh, they took a little more territory they gloated over the fact that their historical enemy was being uh, destroyed and so on and this uh, this was a thorn in the in the to the to the Israelites, and to their prophets, Edom had built a, uh, a fortress on a on a prominent rock, which they regarded as an impregnable military uh, bastion. At the time Obadiah is writing, the Arab tribes have overrun that fortress and have uh, and are in the in, in the process of destroying it. Keeping in mind this, this uh, fortress up on a rock, we learned, at the, as this story began, the house they rented sat alone save for a single tall pecan tree on a high embankment overlooking a highway. So the Obadiah reference is not that O.E. Parker is an Obadiah figure, but that he is one uh, for whom the prophecy of Obadiah is relevant. That is to say, he is the Edomite uh, who has, uh, who has uh, tried to uh, cure himself in some fortress, and the fortress is now being overrun by the Arabs. Three, in three very prominent places in this story, the word Arabesque is used to describe the tattoos. What, uh, wh- what has happened to, to Parker is that he has become totally fascinated by the Arabesque design. What I think Planner O'Connor is doing is associating that to, the, to being overrun by the Arabs. Now, uh, here's what Obadiah says. The Lord Yahweh says this to Edom, "'Your pride of heart has led you astray, "'you whose home is in the holes in the rocks, "'who make the heights your dwelling, "'who say in your heart, "'Who will bring me down to the ground, "'as though you soared like the eagle?' As though you set your nest among the stars, I would still fling you down again. It is Yahweh who speaks. So who will bring you down to the ground? Confirmation is—it uh, ha- it has to do with grounding, to ground someone steadfastly in something, or to give one some kind of firm grounding, to put one's feet on the ground. And then Obadiah goes on. The prophet Obadiah goes on. They have driven you right to the frontiers. They have misled you, all your allies. They have deceived you, all your fine friends. Okay, back to the story. This girl then says, Obadiah, Obadiah Elihu, she said in a reverent voice. If you call me that aloud, I'll bust your head open, Parker said. What's yours? Sarah Ruth Kate. she said. Sarah, Sarah Ruth is Sarah and Ruth, uh, the uh, Old Testament women who carry the promise and uh, who keep the promise alive. But let's go back to his middle name, which is Elihu. Elihu is the fourth of, of Job's counselors. Elihu's speech in Job has been set in probably by a later author who has read the first three uh, interrogators of Job, and he rejects both Job's position on the... On this matter, and the first three interrogators' position job 's position is that God is unjust, and the first three of job 's uh, counselors suggest that uh, job must have been sinful because he did because he 's being punished so their their understanding is that all all hardship is retributive punishment for sin, and what elihu says is that sometimes God uses hardship to bring us around. So here's what Elihu says. God speaks first in one way, then in another. But no one listens. He speaks by dreams and visions that come in the night when slumber comes on mankind and men are all asleep in bed. Then it is, he whispers in the ear of man and may frighten him with fearful sights to turn him away from evildoing and make an end of his pride to save his soul from the pit and his life from the pathway to Sheol. So first dreams, and then whispers, and then he may frighten him to get him to turn around. He whispers a message in their ears, urging them to amend themselves. The wretched, however, he saves by their wretchedness and uses distress to open their eyes. So these are the two messages that are in this man's name. One is that the Arabs will eventually overrun that that uh, fortress on a hill, and the second is that God starts by whispering these vague uh, dreams and visions and so on and so forth, and then He provides sometimes shock, sometimes hardship, sometimes distress, uh, all in a way of all for the purpose of getting. Want to turn around. It was plain to Parker that Sarah Ruth uh, was crazy about him. She liked him even though she insisted that pictures on the skin were vanity of vanities, and even after hearing him curse, and even, even after she had asked him if he was saved and he had replied that he didn't see it was anything in particular to be saved from. He makes a pass at her and she knocks him down, saying, uh, That's, that comes after we're married. And he says, and, and he thought to himself, I, I'm not going to have anything more to do with this woman. And the next sentence is, they were married in the county ordinary's office because Sarah Ruth thought churches were idolatrous. Now, Flannery O'Connor, as we know from her writings, she said to her friend, I read these stories over and over and laugh and laugh. One would, one would dearly like to know what parts she laughs at. Uh, but I think she laughs at the end of that sentence they were married in the county ordinary's office because Sarah Ruth thought churches were idolatrous. Everything in this story is idolatrous. And the, the one thing that gets accused of being I- idolatry is the church. <laughs> if uh, once we lose confirmation or something uh, to that effect, there is only one adult sacrament left, marriage. Now, we need adult sacraments. Uh, else we live our lives in some childish fantasy. But what happens in a world where there's only one adult sacrament left and it a very, a very diminished shadow of its possible self, what happens is that that sacrament gets used whenever a sacrament is needed, whether or not that might be the right one, you see? So you get it, it's, it's being overused. It's the only one available. So uh, a lot of people use it when that's not the one they're really after. So this is a story, I think, about, in part about uh, using that sacrament when that was not quite the one. Uh, Or at least there's that hint here. There's no other adult sacrament available. Parker had no opinion about the church being idolatrous one way or another. The ordinary's office now, you see churches are idolatrous, so they go to the ordinary's office, which of course is not. And it's very similar to the judge's desk in, uh, in The Displaced Person. Remember the judge's desk, which was a little, a little set piece that was just sort of a parable to the church with the, with the tabernacle-like safe that was locked and empty? The ordinary's office was lined with cardboard file boxes and record books with dusty yellow strips of paper hanging out of them. The ordinary was an old woman with red hair who had held the office for 40 years and looked as dusty as her books. She married them from behind the iron grill of a stand-up desk, and when she finished, she said with a flourish, $3.50, send till death do you part, and yanks, yanks some forms out of a machine. So there's the sacramental nature of the... That's the that, this, this is what sacraments have come to in the culture, you see. And the next sentence is, marriage did not change Sarah Ruth a jot, and it made Parker gloomier than ever. Every morning he decided he had had enough and would not return that night, and every night he returned. Whenever Parker couldn't stand the way he felt, he would have another tattoo. But the only surface left on him now was his back. He didn't care to have them on his back because he couldn't see them there. Sarah Ruth could see them there, but she didn't care to see the ones that were already there. At the judgment seat of God, Jesus is going to say to you, what have you been doing all your life besides have pictures drawn all over you? Parker did nothing much when he was at home but listened to what the judgment seat of God would be like for him if he didn't change his way. Dissatisfaction began to grow so great in Parker that there was no containing it outside of a tattoo. It had to be on his back. And a dim intuition begins to form in him. What would the subject be? And he thinks... Ah, it will be a religious subject, which will force Sarah Ruth to appreciate it. And he thought what it might be, and he thought first the Bible, and then he thought, no, it has to be better than the Bible. And he began to lose sleep. Quote, he was already losing flesh. Sarah Ruth just threw food in a pot and let it boil. He developed a little tick in the side of his face. Now, losing flesh is a Pauline reference here. See, See flesh for Paul is, is something like the ego. And uh, losing flesh is a perfectly wonderful thing if you happen to be in the care of a uh, Teresa of Avila or St. John of the Cross or somebody of that uh, sophistication. But if you start losing flesh, na- meaning losing your ego-centeredness, uh, outside of that environment, uh, you, it starts to pathologize. It could very easily pathologize you. You lose the one thing that gives you some kind of coherence. And he's beginning to do that. He has no no subtle, sophisticated, uh, traditional understanding of what it is that's going on in him. But regardless of that, he's already beginning to lose flesh. And he's developing a little tick in the side of his face. And things are beginning to go very strange for him. Once or twice, he found himself turning around abruptly as if someone were trailing him. Now, here's a great non-sequitur sentence for you. He had had a granddaddy who had ended in the state mental hospital, although not until he was 75, but as urgent as it might be for him to get a tattoo, it was just as urgent that he get exactly the right one to bring Sarah Ruth to heel. That's one sentence. This is a man who's Uh, coming apart. This is this thing inside of him has, is now taking over. One day he's baling hay. The field, big field with a big tree in the middle. Parker began at the outside of the field and made circles inward toward it. As he circled the field, his mind was on a suitable design for his back. At, all at once he saw the tree reaching out to grasp him. A ferocious thud propelled him into the air, and he, had, and he heard himself yelling in an unbelievably loud voice, God above! He landed on his back while the tractor crashed upside down into the tree and burst into flame. The first thing Parker saw were his shoes, quickly being eaten by the fire. One was caught under the tractor. The other was some distance away, burning by itself. He was not in them. He could feel the hot breath of the burning tree on his face. He scrambled backwards, still sitting, his eyes cavernous, and if he had known how to cross himself, he would have done it. Well, there you have it, the burning bush and the no shoes. This is the, this is the combination between the experience of Moses before the burning bush, where he has to remove his shoes, and the experience of Paul, who gets knocked off his course uh, in the New Testament. And so suddenly, the, the God's ways have changed. They begin with this sort of vague dreamlike thing with the tattooed man. And then there is the slap with the broom by his wife and her rejection of the tattooed approach to the problem of spiritual life. And now he's run right into this tree and it burst into flames and his shoes have come off. But he didn't know how to cross himself. You see, that's part of the... He didn't have any of those, uh, those aids to understand what's happening to him. He runs, crawls to his truck, drives to the city to get a tattoo. He only knew that there had been a great change in his life, a leap forward into a worse unknown, and that there was nothing he could do about it. It was, for all intents, accomplished. The artist had two large cluttered rooms above a chiropodist's office on the back street. Parker, still barefoot, burst silently in on him at a little after three in the afternoon. A chiropodist is somebody who takes care of your feet, uh, and he burst in barefoot. Confirmation is the grounding of oneself in reality, so that when, when the social order is swept by one of its periodic, crazy episodes, one doesn't get caught up in it. One is grounded in something more permanent than that. Uh, and here's insistence on being grounded, the feet The artist was bald. With the aid of mirrors, the artist had tattooed on the top of his head a miniature owl. Now, of course, that's Minerva's sign of wisdom, classical wisdom, the owl. The miniature owl is the standard worldly wisdom. Parker burst in and said, "I I want that book with all the religious pictures in it. I've got to find one put on my back. And he says, well, what do you want? you want saints, angels, Christ? What is it you want? God. Father, son, or spirit? Tattoo artist. (laughs) (laughs) Just God, Parker said impatiently. Christ, I don't care. Just so it's God. (laughs) He hands him the book and he says, the up-to-date ones are in the back. So you start with the up-to-date ones that are in the back and you go forward. Parker sat down with the book and wet his thumb and began to go through it, beginning at the back where the up-to-date pictures were. Some of them he recognized, the good shepherd, forbid them not, the smiling Jesus, Jesus the physician's friend. But he kept turning rapidly backwards, and the pictures became less and less reassuring. So he starts, you see at the back, the up-to-date ones are all these saccharine, sentimental romantic, sweet Jesus stuff. And he's too far gone for any of that sweet Jesus stuff. So he starts, and pretty soon you getting into these that are a lot less reassuring than that. He had almost reached the front of the book. On one of the pages, a pair of eyes glanced at him swiftly. Parker sped on, then stopped. His heart, too, appeared to cut off. There was absolute silence. It said as plainly as if Silence were a language. Go back. He turned back to the picture. The haloed head of a flat, stern, Byzantine Christ with all-demanding eyes. He sat there trembling. His heart began slowly to beat again, as if it were being brought to life by a subtle power. That'll cost you plenty, the artist said. But he said, we better change something. You don't want all those little squares in there, and we, let's put some better features on the face. Parker said, just like it is. And the tattoo artist said, well, it's your funeral. So he's on the table getting the tattoo, and uh, we learned some other things. In Japan, he had had a tattoo of the Buddha done on his upper, upper arm with ivory needles. In Burma, a little brown root of a man had made a peacock on each of his knees using thin pointed sticks two feet long. Amateurs had worked on him with pins and soot. So this is, he'd done everything. He had done it all. Buddhas, peacocks. We know how Flannery O'Connor feels about peacocks. Pins and soot, anything. After the first session in the mirror, the, the, the tattoo artist only half finished and there's only the impression left. just the kind of a vague outline of the face. With the eyes aren't in it yet. And for a minute, he thought he'd been tricked and that the tattoo artist had put the physician's friend on the back. Uh, but then he's, he's uh, told that uh, there's another session in which they're going to put the eyes in. So he spends the night in the Haven of Light Christian Mission, which was a good place because it was free and they served a meal of sorts. A oblique reference, I think, to the, to the Eucharist in there. He couldn't sleep all night. There's a phosphorescent cross glowing at the end of the room. Suddenly the tree reached out to grasp him again uh, because that's, that tree is the, is the Old Testament version of the cross. You see. It reaches out to grasp him again and burst into flame. The shoe burned quietly by itself. The eyes in the book said to him, Go back. He longed for Sarah Ruth. Her sharp tongue and ice-pick eyes were the only comfort he could bring to mind. He decided he was losing it. (laughs) Her eyes appeared soft and dilatory compared to the eyes in the book. He felt as though under their gaze, the eyes in the book, under their gaze, he was as transparent as the wing of a fly. And this transparency comes in again at the end, of course. Tattoo artist... The next day, I asked him why he chose a religious picture. He said, have you gone and got religion? Parker's throat felt salty and dry. No, he said, I ain't got no use for none of that. A man can't save himself from whatever it is. He don't deserve none of my sympathy. These words seemed to leave his mouth like wraiths and to evaporate at once, as if he had never uttered them. Then why'd you do it? I married this woman that saved, Parker said. I never should have done it. I ought to leave her. She's done and gone, got pregnant. The, the artist says, you think she'll like it and lay off your while?" <laughs> I love that. You think she'll like it and lay off your while? <laughs> she can't help herself, Parker said. She can't say she don't like the looks of God. He didn't want to look at it when it was finished, but the artist showed, forced him to look at it because he was proud of his own work. And Parker looked, turned white, and moved away. The eyes in the face, continue to look at him, still straight, all demanding, encircled in silence. I'm going through this quickly. He grabs a bottle of whiskey, drinks it quickly, goes in, goes uh, to the pool hall where there's a bar and gambling machines and some old friends, one of whom slaps him on the back. Old, old E Parker, he says. He's just had a tattoo on his back, so he flinches, and so they all want to see the new tattoo, and... Uh, they gather around and lift the shirt up. They pulled up his shirt. Parker felt all the hands drop away instantly, and his shirt fell again like a veil over the face. There was silence in the room, which seemed to Parker to grow from the circle around him until it extended to the foundations under the building and upward through the beams of the roof. Finally, someone said, Christ. And hubbub begins mm-hmm. again. O.E.'s oh, got religion and is witnessing for Jesus, aren't you, O.E.? And and he he, uh, wades into them, punching wildly, and they throw him out. Then a calm descended on the pool hall, as nerve-shattering as if the long barn-like room were the ship from from which Jonah had been cast into the sea. Parker sat for a long time on the ground in the alley behind the pool hall, examining his soul. That's the first time he's done that he's finally thrown out of the pool hall, which is a parable for the culture he's been living in. And there he is sitting in the alley and examining his soul. He saw it as a spider web of facts and lies that was not at all important to him, but which appeared to be necessary in spite of his opinion. The eyes that were now forever on his back were eyes to be obeyed. He was as certain of this as he had ever been of anything. Throughout his life, grumbling and sometimes cursing, often afraid, once in rapture, Parker had obeyed whatever instinct of this kind had come to him. In rapture, when his spirit had lifted at the sight of the tattooed man at the fair, afraid when he had joined the Navy, grumbling when he had married Sarah Ruth. So this is all part of this thing that had been happening in him and all he had to go on were the various things offered by his culture Uh, the thought of Sarah Ruth brought him to his feet she would know what to do she would clear up the rest of it she would be pleased and it seemed then that pleasing her was what he had always wanted to do his head is clear of liquor he's driving back the dissatisfaction is gone he felt not quite like himself as if he were a stranger to himself in a new country, even though he recognized everything. When he gets home, he makes a lot of noise to show who's boss. He's been out all night, but he makes a lot of noise just to show that he's still the boss around him. But The door wouldn't open. It didn't have a lock on it, so they had to have a chair against it. Let me in, he hollered, bangs on the door. A sharp voice close to the door said, Who's there? Me. He said, O.E. Silence. Me, he said impatiently. O.E. Silence. O.E. O.E. Parker. You know me. There was silence. Then a voice said slowly, I don't know no O.E. Quit fooling, Parker pleaded. You ain't got any business doing me this way. It's me. Old O.E., I'm back. You ain't afraid of me. So this is old O.E. who has come back. And he has come back. So Parker's back. Meaning two things. What's on his back and his arrival back. Who's there? The same unfeeling voice said. Parker turned his head as if he expected someone behind him to give the answer. The sky had lightened slightly and there were two or three streaks of yellow floating above the horizon. Then, as he stood there, a tree of light burst over the skyline. Now, the last tree that burst was one that burst into flame. Parker fell back against the door as if he had been pinned there by a lance. "'Who's there?' the voice from inside said, and there was a quality about it now that seemed final." The knob rattled and the voice said peremptorily, Who's there, I asked you? Parker bent down and put his mouth near the stuffed keyhole. Obadiah, he whispered. And all at once, just appreciate this, all at once he felt the light pouring through him, turning his spider web of soul into a perfect arabesque of colors, a garden of trees and birds and beasts, Obadiah Elihu, he whispered, the door opened, and he stumbled in. Is't that amazing this this soul you see he had he had sat in the alley and for the first time in his life, examined his soul. And he found it to be a spider web of facts and lies, which was no longer important to him, but but for some reason, it appeared to be necessary. And when the light comes through it, just the way it is, all the lies, all the facts, all of it taken together, nothing changed, all all that has to happen is that the light has to come through it. And it became a perfect arabesque of color. A garden of trees and birds and beasts. The moment of revelation comes, shines right through that, which is what he'd been after all his life since he saw the tattooed man, was a perfect arabesque of color. But Flannery O'Connor's not going to allow us to end that way. Sarah Ruth has her hands on her hips She's angry because he's got to pay for that tractor he burned up uh, when he hit the tree. He starts to unbutton his shirt and she said, I'm you're not gonna get any of me this, we're too close to morning." Shut your mouth, he said quietly. Look at this, and then I don't want to hear no more out of you. He shows he shows her the picture on his back. You know who that is? Who, nobody I know, she said. <laughs> It's him, Parker said. Him who? God, Parker cried. God? God don't look like that. What do you know how he looks, Parker moaned. You ain't seen him? He don't look, Sarah Ruth said. He's a spirit. No man shall see his face. Ah, listen, Parker groaned. This is just a picture of him. Idolatry, Sarah Ruth screamed. Idolatry. Inflaming yourself with idols under every green tree. I can put up with lies and vanity, but I don't want no idolater in this house. She grabbed up the broom and began to thrash him across the shoulders with it. (laughs) See, this is is still the confirmation uh, sacrament. Too stunned to resist, he sat there and took it. Large welts had formed on the face of the tattooed Christ. Indelibility is what he's been after. And the Sacrament of Confirmation that makes it indelible. And when the slap is both a slap on his back and a slap on Christ's face, then it takes. Then the connection is made. The rejected one, He staggers to the door and stumbles out to the pecan tree. Sarah Ruth looked toward the pecan tree and her eyes hardened still more. There he was, who called himself Obadiah Elihu, leaning against the tree, crying like a baby. That's where the pregnancy image comes to term. The other thing at confirmation is that you get a new name. Uh, the confirmation sacrament uh, bestows a new name on you, an adult name. He acquires a baptism name, but with no, uh, no sense of it, its real significance. spends his life avoiding it, and it's at confirmation that, it, uh, that implications of it are uh, born in on him. And uh, finally, he suffers the the, the slap that uh, that makes the makes that achieves the indelibility that he's been after with all this tattoo business. So when we look at Parker crying like a baby out by the pecan the tree, there's reason for hope that he has had an experience of sacramental significance. But there's actually no assurance of that, and I think that's part of what Flannery O'Connor uh, is driving at, that, it, that, that there is a hit-and-miss dimension to it given the sacramental uh, barrenness of uh, contemporary culture. I wanted to uh, quote some passages in Martin Buber because Martin Buber is concerned about uh, these things. Though Buber is uh, uh, Jewish, uh, he had a great sacramental consciousness, if I could put it that way, which comes out so powerfully in his writings. And he also had a great concern for confirmation. Uh, So I want to read a couple of passages from his writings. He says, the human person needs confirmation. An animal does not need to be confirmed, for it is what it is unquestionably. It is different with man. Sent forth from the natural domain of the species into the hazard of the solitary category, surrounded by the air of a chaos which came into being with him, secretly and bashfully, he watches for a yes which allows him to be and which can come to him only from one human person to another. He says our nature really is fundamentally twofold. The wish on the part of everyone, to be so confirmed. And on the other hand, the innate capacity in each of us to confirm others. But then he goes on to say that this capacity to confirm others lies so immeasurably fallow, constitutes the real weakness and questionableness of the human race. Actual humanity exists only where this capacity unfolds. So whether we're looking at the at the church's formal procedures for sacramental confirmation or to some other situational version of it, they are all threatened by the same danger. The danger that instead of providing the kind of confirmation that Buber on one hand and the and the Christian tradition on the other is concerned with, it provides a sort of parody of it, a confirmation into the sacrificial system instead of the sacramental community. Let me quote uh, from Juan Luis Segundo, who is a Latin American theologian, and this is something he wrote uh, in the early 70s uh, prior to anything published by Girard on this subject. So. Uh, there's no, been, no, been no influence. You're already an influence, but you will be struck by uh, the similarity. How did it happen that Christianity took a step backward into the religious realm and fell back into the pagan notion of sacraments as religious instruments? I'll go on with that quote in a second, but we've said here before that it's closer to the truth. It's not the truth, not the whole truth, but it's closer to the truth to say that Jesus came to end religion than that than he came to start a new one. So he says, how did it happen that Christianity took a step backward into the religious realm and fell back into the pagan notion of sacraments as religious instruments? And then he goes on, there is a plausible historical explanation for this. The primitive Christian communities confronted the pagan world and found themselves being accused of being atheists because they did not perform sacrifices or make offerings to any god. Confronted with this accusation, Christians took pains to transform what Christ had instituted as gesture and sign into sacrifice and offering." End quote. So the Christians, not wanting to be seen as atheists, falling into a little problem here. Sebastian Moore says, Sin is seeing my life through other people's eyes. Slipping into it there a little bit, uh, and not wanting to be seen as atheist, and in a legitimate sense, not wanting to scandalize so there's a, one can understand it uh, they began to to talk about their procedures their what they did together in terms that were intelligible to the outside world in terms of sacrifice and offering, but slowly but surely, those terms uh, Dominated their own discourse about what they were up to, and to this day, the Eucharistic liturgy is called in the Roman tradition the sacrifice of the Mass. So Segundo says, right from the very beginning, we had this problem: not wanting to look irreligious, we the, the tradition became another religion instead of what it was called to be. A few years ago, I wrote a little poem, uh, the chief literary uh, uh, virtue of which is its brevity. But I wanted to uh, read it to you. I have two poems today. The second one do- doesn't even have that virtue, but uh, it, I, I hope it has others. In any case, I want to read them both to you, uh, one at the beginning anyone one at the end. It was an attempt to, uh, it's not quite a haiku, but it was an attempt to uh, write some brief little thing expressive of the of this sort of desiccation of the sacramental consciousness. It's called Neolith. It goes like this. What was a quarry once, source of ballast stone and cornerstone, is now a concrete plant. The swimming hole is gone. The factory sells what everybody wants. Dust, the water, makes more adamant. Adamantine is a John Milton term uh, that he uses for the, the, the rock-boundedness of, uh, of Satan after he is thrown out of uh, the celestial, his celestial home, you see. I've always liked that adamantine. It means bound in rock. Uh, and concrete being uh, the kind of thing, the kind of dust, we are dust and from dust you come to dust you shall return, which, uh, when you add the baptismal water, it simply becomes more adamant. And, of course, adamant has... I don't want to parse my own poem here, but adamant is an emotional description. If the sacramental consciousness evaporates and we continue to apply sacramental procedures to, to a situation which has lost, its, its, uh, lost touch with their mystery and meaning... Then it becomes a parody of itself. And all it produces is, all it enhances really is the sacrificial system. Water uh, makes the, wa- baptismal water simply makes the situ- situation more adamant.